Zero trust, micro-segmentation, what does it all mean and why does it matter? Well, we're going to try to answer those questions today because we are talking with Illumio, so stay tuned. everybody. Welcome back to another Future Tech video podcast. The audio version of the podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and most of the others, or you can find it at futr.buzzsprout.com. We're going to be talking about a couple of hot topics in security, zero trust and micro-segmentation. So many companies have been told by their auditors to segment their systems, but it hasn't been smooth sailing. Zero trust is talked about a lot, but few companies have made it work. Today, we're talking with Illumio's chief evangelist, Nathaniel Iverson, who's going to tell us what he is seeing in the market. Welcome, Nathaniel. Thanks so much. It's my pleasure to be here. I just want to start out by getting a little bit of an insight into what Illumio is and what was the idea that you know the founders of the company started with. I think those are actually two different things. They may, they may be. What Illumio is, is... Our corporate mission is that we would want to see a world that's free of high-profile breaches. That is, even if something was compromised or somebody got into a place they shouldn't, there wouldn't be a big B breach, the kind that actually make the news. It would be contained in a very small kind of a way. And the way that we do that is by keeping things separate. That's kind of everything we do. It's about separating things, whether they're virtual machines, containers, bare metal servers, users in the data center, in the cloud, doesn't matter. We keep things separate. Now, that was the initial vision, to get back to the other part of your question. What did the founders think they were going to do? What they noticed was that there was a shift taking place in the marketplace. If you go back to our founding, you know, back seven, eight years ago, well, the whole world was using firewalls only, and it was all hardware that was being used to keep things separate. At that same time, in 2012, the industry was exploding with DevOps, and all of a sudden, all, there was this big mismatch between how fast people could turn up systems and how fast you could get a rule out of like network infrastructure from a firewalling perspective. And they just observed that somebody was going to need to close that gap. If you could turn up new systems in you know 90 seconds and then you're going to wait two or three weeks for a firewall rule, someone was going to need to do that. It was going to need to be software driven. It was probably going to need to be independent of the network and operate in a different way. And so that initial observation led to kind of the where we are today. Where we are today is in this sort of post-pandemic or pandemic, current pandemic world where, you know, things have just gotten really distributed. We've got um, a lot of folks working from home. We've got a lot of applications that have moved to the cloud or moved to SaaS applications. It's it's really driven a lot of next-gen IT at, at a sort of rapid pace. Um, and, and it led to a lot of um, security challenges because people, I don't think, had the opportunity to fully think through what they were doing. Um, one of the big topics in security these days is what we were talking about before zero trust and i know that's kind of a a, a sweet spot for you guys um can you just kind of tell everybody what zero trust means and how you how you see it fitting into the market 
Zero trust is one of the most foundational principles of all of information security. Now, for the longest time, it didn't go by those buzzwords. In other words, nobody called it zero trust. They simply called it least privilege. I did some research and the first mention of the principle of least privilege goes back to a guy at MIT in August of 1973. <laughs> he was working on a system for the Department of Defense and he wrote an architecture paper about the principles of security. And one of them was he called least privilege. That is, things should only be given as much permission as they need and no more. In other words, if two things shouldn't talk, there should be no possibility of them talking. And it's also interesting that he coined the use of the word firewall in that exact same paper. And so some of these things that seem like very new concepts to us because they're all of a sudden hot in the marketplace, they're, they actually represent architectural thought that's even decades old. And so zero trust correctly understood is just that simple principle that things should not have any more privilege than they need in order to function. And so that applies across networks, the idea that you shouldn't be able to talk to things. It applies to permissions on systems. Even if I get to the system, I shouldn't have any more permission than I need to do my job on that system. It deals with people. People shouldn't have any more permission than they should have. It deals with data. No one should have access to the data if they don't need permission. And so there's a number of models for it in the world, from Forrester's model to others, but the same principle underlies it all. And I think what's happened is that for a long time, organizations have known this, they've tried to do it, but in practice, it's been very difficult to get there. Yeah. And so they kind of had halfway there and all these things, but everybody believes it. And I think the current push towards zero trust is mostly about actually getting there. Like, there's a real intentionality in the industry that people actually do wanna get more granular, they wanna pull it down. If they've got firewalls at the top of the data center, they wanna pull those down and make sure that they can get really close to the application. Yeah, yeah, I, I mean, I, I think, you know, the, the devil's in the details, right? I mean, it, you know, the, the idea of, you know, least privilege is, as you said, been around for a long time. I mean, whatever is old is new, right? Um, I think we've seen that plenty of times. Um, but I think, you know, with the, the, the um, size of the infrastructure of so many enterprises and, and, and the, 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 the complexity of some of the solutions that have been implemented, um, it, it's been a real struggle just for even companies to wrap their heads around that, right? Um, and I think, you know, the challenge is when you get so complex, you know, that has its own security implications too. So it's, you know, it's, it's a difficult balancing act to put into place. Um, what are your thoughts about like what makes uh, an effective uh, zero trust implementation? Well, I, I think I want to riff for just a second on what you said about it's hard okay. because I think that's true. And I think this is the hard. If Cisco is right and they do this data center survey thing every year and they've published it for 15 or 20 years and they broadly say every year that about 20% of the traffic actually leaves through the top of the data center. And that means that roughly 80% of the traffic is kind of inside the frame of the data center or the prod environment. And what that means is this, all the firewall rules that an organization has written to separate things that are up there at the perimeter. That's 20% of the traffic. That implies that the problem is five times more complex inside the data center than their entire existing firewall policy. And so that neatly frames the problem. You have security people that are saying, go fast and do it now and do it more granularly. And yet the actual magnitude of the problem is kind of 5X what people have spent capital and assigned people to do. And so in that world, this is where you get the thing where people have a lot of desire to say, yes, I want to put a ring or a fence around something as small as a single application. 
But then when you investigate the operational cost of doing that, you know, it can be, you know, kind of quite expensive to do so. And so I think that solutions that are coming into this space are the ones that succeed are the ones that are going to address that workflow issue of how do you not hire more people, not spend millions of dollars on hardware, but you still solve kind of a 5x problem in terms of the level of complexity. And that's the work to be done. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I think the, you know, the other thing too, is that, um, you know, we're trying to implement security procedures in a world that's just changing so rapidly. Technology is changing Technology. so incredibly rapidly. And, you know, with the pandemic, as I sort of alluded to earlier, you know, folks have moved to the to the cloud and things like that. But we've also seen this big explosion of microservices and containers and things like that. And and, you know, and and infrastructure that isn't persistent. Right. So, you know, when you have things popping up all, all over the place, it's not something traditional security products can handle well. I mean, you can't solve that problem with a firewall for the most part, right? Especially when you're talking about that east-west traffic. Um, so, you know, what you know, tell us a little bit about what what your perspective is on you know how to address some of those challenges. Well, probably, I mean, you correctly state that it's not a really great thing to do with a firewall, and I think it's important to peel back the why of that. The way that you implement security policy traditionally is that you type network statements. Someone actually has to type 192, 168, 1743, space 14, 18, 19, 27, space 3306 permit. And that's the kind of thing that we call a firewall rule. And there's only one problem. No one actually says that in a meeting. <laughs> what people say in a meeting is the web server needs to talk to the app server. The app server needs to talk to the database. Sometimes it talks to the reporting engine and so on. So that points out that there's a difference between policy, what I want to be true in the world, and rules, the method that I implement that policy. Yeah. And in a firewall, it's the same. There's no separation. And the only way you get the policy is you go through that translation every time. And that's why it's slow. And that's why it doesn't work when you start doing dynamic infrastructure, like containers and spinning things up in the cloud and like all of those things. In those cases, you've got application instances that are decoupled from the underlying infrastructure. In other words, they can run on any container host. They don't have to run on one particular. It's like you're just instantiating containers somewhere in this cluster. And as long as the security ends up being tied back to the network by IP address and to a network enforcement point location, it will never be fast. It can't be. It's not abstracted yet from the underlying infrastructure. Right. And so I think the fundamental thing that people have to do in order to move towards zero trust at scale is they have to have abstraction from the network. They have to decouple the security segmentation from the network as a, as a place to start. Yeah, I, I think, you know, the other thing, too, is that um, the old paradigm doesn't lend itself to the new flexibility that we need to operate in in this world because, you know, it's more resources on demand. It's more, you know, capacity on demand uh, sort of world we're in. Um, and and in those scenarios, you know, what I see a lot in the, in the folks who have, you know, big Kubernetes environments and, you know, micro, uh, say, uh, micro um, microservices architectures and things like that, they um, they have a tendency to build these big flat networks and let sort of everything kind of figure itself out. And 
Um, you know, when you talk about east-west traffic and micro-segmentation, which is another one I think we should, you know, touch on too, because I'm sure everybody's gotten dinged from a QSA on, on you know, the micro-segmentation of their network, right? Um, you know, I, it just, there's just not, not a lot of ways to do that with a traditional infrastructure. Um, and I know you guys, you know, have a different take on that, so... Yeah, it's true, because I think it, it is that tension that exists between the network and the security team. Like if you have it set up so that every bit of segmentation requires a change on the network, then you end up in this situation where the security team wants to make a change, but the network team thinks it's an expensive or inconvenient change, and there's this pull. The other thing that happens is, quite frankly, um, you know, since spanning tree issues were solved in about 1995 with PortFast. Were they solved? <laughs> <laughs> most network people would prefer to build a large flat network yeah. because it's yeah. super scalable and highly performant. And yet it's the security people like, no, we want to carve that up into about 14 million VLANs and subnets and zones. Yeah. And yeah. so there is this tension that exists between what security wants and what networking wants. And if you can actually separate that out so that you can get whatever segmentation you need, without making a change in the network, that's kind of the grail. And that is the thing that actually works for these kind of new microservices, fragmented, stand up on demand kind of things. They could stand up anywhere. What if half the app is in the cloud and half the apps in the data center? This is not an uncommon thing. Yeah. You know, the location isn't what's important, it turns out. It's just the function of the thing and its relation to other things that needs to be addressed. And very often, that's not very tightly coupled to the network. You know, one of the challenges that I think people have a lot when they talk micro segmentation is, you know, we'll walk into a customer and we'll say, you know, like, what, how's, how's your network set up? Who's, what's communicating with what? You know, it's like, there's no good outline of like, what, what other dependencies exist in the network and what's talking to what. And, and, and sometimes it's very infrequently that it needs to have that communication, but it does need to have that communication, you know, so just... I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting about what you guys are doing is you're bringing, you know, some of that network visibility into the game to help people create a way to actually, you know, effectively manage those things. Yeah, well, I, we have a, a saying inside of Illumio that you can't segment what you can't see. In other words, like you can't write a firewall rule unless you first know the traffic. Like you fundamentally need to know what's going on. And it's interesting that no one does know what's going on. And it's not because anybody did a bad job. It's yeah. simply the fact that the application was built four or five years ago by a consultant or a vendor who was on a short-term contract with a project team that's now disbanded and half of whom don't no longer work at the firm. And you do that across 1,000, 2,000, 5,000 systems, and it's pretty legit that no one actually knows how any given application works. And the challenge that people have is they're drowning in data already. Like if you go to the network team, they've got NetFlow. And you think, well, great, I have every flow in the whole production environment. There's only one problem. It's organized around the network. And if yeah. you need to know top talkers and the location of your network nodes and interfaces, that's wonderful. But if you actually need to know how the application tier is spread across three subnets and why the database is in Azure, you know, like the NetFlow information is not super helpful. And then people are stuck with either I'm going to do this manually by going in and looking at connection tables, which no one has time to do. And so you kind of get this thing where a lot of these projects stall out if they don't first have good, what I would call policy discovery. 
That is, how do I even know what I need to do and what's possible to do? Just let me discover what policy I need to write. And that's, I think, the first problem that anybody purporting to do micro-segmentation has to address, is how do I just discover what's there? How do I put it out in a visual format? Because people are visual pattern matchers. We're not good at big tables of information. Um, you can't give me 10,000 lines of IP addresses and think I'm gonna make sense of it. It's not gonna work. But yeah. if it's in a properly structured picture, you know, there's a chance. Yeah. And I think, you know, when I look at some of the, the traditional tools that have been applied to this, you know, like Cisco's ACI and, you know, VMware's NSX and things like that, I think that's where you get into some of those big challenges. Like you were saying before with the firewall, it's like you got to write a rule, you know, it's like writing a rule and then trying to, you know, have some thought into how that might change over time or dynamically adjust itself. That's a kind of tall order when you can't necessarily see those sort of communications happening in real time and what the impact and effects of some of the changes you're making are. Um, you know, I think that's where a lot of people have really struggled. And I think it's interesting that, you know, you're bringing, you know, some of that tooling around it to, to solve for some of those issues, right? Yeah, it's an important point because it's not just, you know, I think specifically of the SDN products, one of the interesting things is almost everything in the data center can take an ACL. Like all the routers and switches can, all your virtual infrastructure can. It's totally not an enforcement point problem. It's not a question of whether or not your router or switch can take an ACL. It's, do you know which ACL to put in there? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, if you put an ACL in there, is there any kind of automation to help you maintain that over time via an abstraction layer? And that's where, frankly, these products are wonderful for network automation. Like in 2021, you have got to be able to automate your network. Like you're going to use ACI, you're going to use NSX. You've got to be able to automate your network. I mean, yeah. that's just yeah. inexcusable. But if you need to keep things separate, you actually need more than the automation of subnets, VLANs, and zones. I mean, if you have 10,000 systems, you're going to make 10,000 VLANs? Yeah, I mean, like it, at some point it falls, it falls over. I don't know where it falls over, but at some point between zero and 10,000, it's certainly fallen over well before then. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the things that we've, we talk about this enablement gap all the time. Right. And I think um, one of the challenges that so many organizations have is just finding the right people to do the kind of security work that needs to be done. And I think, you know, there's, there's a couple pieces to that one is, is like, it's hard to attract that talent because security people want to be doing security work, but a lot of enterprises that security work ends up being, you know, can you go build a box over here so that we can, you know, throw this on the network and take a look at the, you know, it's like they get stuck doing a lot of stuff they don't want to do. And then the other piece of it is just like the complexity of some of these attacks and some of the, the security architectures. Um, it, it needs somebody with a deep understanding of some of these things. And those people are very hard to come by and they're very hard to come by outside of major markets. It's true, and I think that that neatly encapsulates the pain that any leader of network security faces. If you're the director of network security or the vice president of network security, that neatly says what your problem is. You have some super, both expensive in terms of money maybe, but even more so in terms of skill set. They're rare. And when you have those people sitting there with the responsibility to be perfect touch typists of firewall rules, it's a vast underutilization of what their capacity is. And a lot of times what we're seeing is that if people can get a better policy model, that is they no longer have to write ACLs in order to get security, if they can make it so that the policy language takes the effort, then you can distribute some of the policy writing across the organization. Maybe your special people still have to approve it, 
totally fine. But if you can get a little bit of extra help from having the right kind of abstraction, suddenly your application owner may be able to write some of the rules for the application. They don't know anything about the core services, the structure, the data center, and you'd never let them write those rules. But if right, they could right. write part of the rules and then your smart people could write part of the other rules and no one had to use an IP address, all of a sudden the problem becomes simpler. You know, one of our early customers, their lead firewall administrator, was in our training class after, um, you know, kind of we had just started the installation process. We've been through four days of technical training. At the end of it, he looks at me and he says, so if I have this straight, I'm never going to need to write an ACL again. <laughs> and I said, yes, that's true. And he said, this is the best product ever. <laughs> and six months later, I was in the elevator with him and I said, how's it going? And he said, dude, you were right. I don't write ACLs anymore. <laughs> and, you know, it's just kind of fascinating because it speaks to that exact psychology of like, I'm really smart. I went to a good school. I got a great degree. I've got 15 years of experience. And I'm in the touch typing pool, typing ACLs, you know? I think that um, one of the challenges we see is around, you know, regulatory and compliance issues with with a lot of these uh these networks. And I think that, um, you know, when we look at, you know, how, you know, like server, so for example, PCI um, requires, you know, to sort of re-audit your firewalls over time, there's a rule change or, or things like that. I think, you know, having, you know, this kind of automation in your network, one, it'll kind of keep your, you know, the scope of some of the changes that you make more, more limited. Um, but I think, you know, you also have a good log of what happened within your environment and what was happening at any given time when things were sort of automatically spinning up, spinning down and things like that too. I mean, I, I got to imagine, you know, this is, this is really nice for the, the, the people who are dealing with the compliance uh, folks. Well, it's interesting because most people that are in compliance are by some nature conservative, right? Like you're looking for people who are good at noticing the rules and following the rules. And so sometimes this is a community of people that don't really want to see change. They're used to seeing things a certain way. But I can tell you, the first time an auditor does an audit visually, instead of by being handed tables and reams full of network information and IP firewall statements to audit, oh my goodness, are they happy. Because if you can look on a map and you can see, here's all the flows of the application, you can visually know exactly how many of those flows the policy covers, you can then look at the log and say, nobody's changed this policy in the last six months, or if they have, exactly who changed it and what they did. All of a sudden, it's just immediately inspectable and you can kind of fly through it. Like you, because the problem is, if I just give you a ream full of firewall statements and a bunch of IP addresses, you actually have no idea what you're looking at. You can't visualize it. Yeah. You don't know. You're kind of, I mean, I'm not accusing anybody of doing a bad job, but it's just, it's hard to make sense of that versus being able to look at it in a way that you can make your own judgment and say, yes, they actually covered the communication needs of this application sufficiently. Like, because I can see all of them and I can see what the protection is and I can see what the protection does. Yeah, I, and I got to imagine, though, um, you know, you've got the old school network and security folks who are just, you know, sort of like inside, outside, nothing, you know, talks from here to here. Um, and, and they like, you know, real isolation and, you know, segmentation between, you know, sort of the major segments of the, of the environment. Um, this has got to be a tough sell to a lot of those guys. How are you addressing, you know, some of the, you know, the old time thinking um, in the market? Well, I, surprisingly, perhaps, 
it's not hard to sell them. And I think the yeah. reason is, is that there are too many years of pain and no solution. The problem for the infrastructure teams did start back in 2012 when the DevOps community just took off and all of yeah. a sudden everything was automated. And here we are in 2021 and we are still talking and not everyone has automated their network. There are people that still cannot turn up subnets and VLANs and zones with a script. And so that state of affairs means that there is an almost constant pressure on the infrastructure team. On the DevOps side, they're pushing saying, why can't you go faster? On the security side, you're getting pressure from, I wish to have more segmentation. Because if you're a security engineer, how much segmentation is good? It's a ratchet wrench. Yeah. All you want is one more tick. Like this year, I want to pull on the handle and get one tick of segmentation. And then next year, I want to come back and pull on the handle again and get another tick of segmentation. And yet every one of those ticks is operationally expensive for the network team. And so yeah. my experience is more that the people on the network are like, you mean I could get segmentation out of my network? How soon? <laughs> like, <laughs> you will help me with this? Keep talking. <laughs> we're ready to we're ready to hear what you have to say, because it it solves an operational problem for the network team. For the security team, it solves the granularity problem is they want more granular segmentation and can't get it because of operational cost. The network team's not principally opposed, except they just can't support the operational burden. So if you solve the network team's operational burden, then kind of everybody wins. And that's the interesting thing about this technology is it plays well in both sides of the house, which you wouldn't necessarily assume. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, from a network perspective, I, you know, they want to have their network running, you know, without any issues. They don't want to get that two in the morning kind of call. And, you know, the, I think the challenge was like when they were going down the ACI route and trying to do micro segmentation or, you know, with NSX and all that. First of all, NSX, you know, may not fall into the network teams or security teams bucket either. You know, so there's sort of a skill set challenge oh, there. But, but I, I think, think, you know, like around ACI and things like that, what I've seen is a lot of folks have, you know, gone down that road. They put in a ton of rules. And it's had a performance impact. It's had a stability impact. And and for you know the network team, you know they they're plumbing. It should always be working, right? Um, so I got to imagine you know the the ability to you know pull some of that out of the hardware pieces um, and and apply it more at the you know software level uh, is is really attractive. And and it also probably you know from a, a capacity management probably makes their their burden a lot less. I would imagine. Well, simplicity always wins, right? If you want something to scale, it is going to have to be simple. Like McDonald's yeah. is not a gourmet restaurant, but boy, can they pump them out. And so there's a simplicity to their process that they even enforce. And so when you think about what simplicity means to a network team, it means that they can troubleshoot quickly. It means that they don't have to sit and think about the implications of things for five hours when they're doing a design. And that simplification is not only like, well, why don't we keep those rules out of the network? If all we did was move the complexity onto the policy writing team, that hasn't solved anything because the complexity still exists. The problem is we need right. to eliminate the complexity entirely. And we need to do that so that no one anywhere has to look at the big table of IP addresses and try to decide if 100,000 things are in the right order or if they're all typed correctly. We need to get it so that someone can look at a single application and at a glance know within 30 seconds whether it's right or not. And if you can yeah, get yeah. there, then all of a sudden things can start to move fast because no one has to do all that cogitation and checking and everything else to make sure they don't break something. 
and on that front, I think, you know, we we talked a little bit earlier about sort of this enablement gap and the sort of the lack of expertise. Um, you know, one of the there's not enough people to go around. So really, the only way to sort of solve for that problem is to insert intelligence into the the things that are doing the securing. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you're seeing on that front? Yeah. One of the things that uh, that we see is that if you think, for example, about this video call that we're doing right now, I actually have no idea how the packets are getting from me to you. I mean, in theory, I kind of do like they're hitting my wireless router and then they're leaving my house and they go to a central office and blah, blah, blah. But I don't actually know how many hops it is or what the latency is or any of the typical network kind of connectivity things. And I don't have to care. Um, it is right. so fully taken care of that no one has to think about it. And I don't have to find the best path to get you packets. But if you think about how firewalls and typical network rules are configured today, I have to explicitly say every single picking thing at every single point in order for connectivity to get all the way through. And we think that ought to change. Yeah. And the way that it ought to change is like this. Look, organizations call their workloads something. Like they call it the web server of my ordering application in the production environment in my Boston data center. And that's different than the web server for my HR application that's in my data center in you know Singapore. Um, and okay. so they use these names. The infrastructure doesn't know the names, but that's what the people need. So if you have a computer that knows all of the flows and can accurately say this IP address is talking to that one, why don't we just tell that computer the names? And if we told that computer the names, then why couldn't it change the policy from web server talks to app, app talks to database? It could then just turn the policy into rules automatically, like a router. It could just say, oh, I need to get packets from me to you. Fantastic. Network figured out. And that would let then the security operations team and the network security team, they could just say, my policy is application ring fencing. Every application has a ring or a fence around it. It's any, any inside the bubble. And we're going to plumb in the individual application and core services rules on the outside. That's my policy. And then that yeah, computer yeah. could just go, no problem. Here's the associated rules. Should I just stick them in firewalls for you? And when you get that kind of change in the operational model where no one has to type ACLs and people just get to deal with what people are good at, pictures and words, then the whole thing can accelerate in a way that you're just never going to get uh, without it. So, so tell me, I mean, we've been sort of talking around the edges of Illumio and, and all the things that Illumio is bringing to the game. Tell me a little bit about like what, what Illumio is doing to solve for all these problems specifically. Well, what we did is we started with a realization that people already own all the enforcement points they're ever going to need. In other words, the data center is literally drowning in firewalls. It, if you look at any operating system that's been built over the last dozen years, there's a perfectly good stateful firewall in it. It's IP tables or NetFilter if it's a Linux machine, it's the Windows filtering platform if it's a Windows machine. All of the network switches can take ACLs, the load balancers can take ACLs, obviously the hardware firewalls can take ACLs, but literally pretty much every system in the data center can take ACLs and no one uses them. Why? Well, because it's too bad of a scale problem. It's like this. Let's say you're an enterprise and you have 10,000 servers in your data center. And I say, dude, it is your lucky day. I work for Cisco. We just had a blowout year. Every sales rep gets to pick one favorite customer to bless. And we've picked you. You have 10,000? I have a fleet of semis right outside. 
I'm gonna give you 10,000 firewalls, one for every server in your data center, and you'll be the most secure customer in the entire planet. Where do I put the firewalls? <laughs> put them on eBay, dude. We're gonna have a good Christmas party this year. <laughs> like no one, yeah, no totally. one can deal. And that, that says the problem is that it's not an enforcement problem. The enforcement points exist, but there's no way to activate them that makes any sense. And the problem that Illumio has solved is how to get the workflow for policy discovery and policy authoring down into this business of policy distribution, which is where are we gonna put those rules? Why don't we put them in all the firewalls that people own? Instead of centralizing them just at one place at the top of the data center, why not put the rules for a server on that server? And if we did that, then the segmentation would be independent from the network. It wouldn't matter what subnet VLAN or zone it was in, it wouldn't matter if it was in the data center or if it was in the Amazon cloud, because the actual security enforcement point follows the operating system or the workload or the container or VM, pick your, pick your word, but it pulls the enforcement so close to the action that there's no longer any network dependency. And when you do that, the firewalling is then distributed across the entire data center. The firewall policy isn't in one place at the top of the data center. It's in all of the places, all across the data center, all across the cloud, all the everywhere. And so you get the benefits we've been talking about of this location independence of the policy abstraction, and you get it by distributing the policy then across enforcement points that are already owned. Yeah, and 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 then you're implying you're applying the uh, intelligence to that as well to make it all go and make it intuitive too, which is interesting. And I think I think sort of the the interesting thing um, with you guys is that you know, seeing the maps, the visual representation of the networks and the communications, and I, you know, seeing how um, anomalous or, or uh, unexpected uh, communication, you know, shows up. I think that's a really interesting uh, piece of it as well. For sure. Because, I mean, at some level, you have your policy. These are the things I know I want to be true. Well, what yeah. happens when there's stuff that's extra? <laughs> And it's helpful in that moment to have a picture that shows you what the extra is and where the extra is going. Because maybe you're okay with the extra, maybe you'd like the extra to fall on the floor. Um, but no matter what you want to decide, it sure is helpful to know that it is extra to your policy and not just an app owner yeah. saying, you know, oh, my thing is broken, I, I need to do this. And if you can actually see it yourself, you stand a better chance of helping them make a correct decision about whether that's something you're gonna do or something you're not gonna do. Tell me a little bit of like, what kind of key markets are you in? Like, wh wh what's sort of your sweet spot? Where do you, you know, like, oh, this is a perfect application for Illumio? Well, at this point, it is getting to be a pretty broad market. If you were to go back with us, <laughs> like, you know, five or seven years ago, the market was basically financial services firms. Um, they are the ones that yeah. first got it. And then after that was global SaaS companies, people like Salesforce and Workday and companies like this. Um, and you can immediately understand why they were at the head of the line. They are handling money, literally, and they need to keep it safe, or they literally have the data of every company in North America and have most of them around the world. Um, you know, and they would face huge reputational loss if any of that was compromised. Yeah. And yeah. so it's easy to understand why they would want it. But I will tell you that we now have people that are in mainline industries fully wanting to micro-segment their environments. Why? The risk landscape's changed. It is something that boards talk about. Why? Because the guy who's on your board may also be on the board of the local school or the police department. And you know what? The municipality in rural Georgia was just held for ransom six months ago. And it didn't make the national news, yeah. 
but it was sure a big deal locally when they had to pay a million and a half dollars to get their servers back. And all of a sudden, people in traditional industries realize that the threat of somebody coming in and encrypting their systems or doing something else is actually not distant. It's happening to, quote, normal organizations, not just the rich kids or the smart kids in the, the Fortune X. It's something that can affect anybody. Yeah. And so we have customers that literally were protecting less than a dozen systems. And we have customers where we're protecting over 100,000 systems. And the thing that ties them together is that shared sense of risk of whether it's an auditor saying you have risk or it's the internal team saying we have risk. What is it? It's people I correctly identifying. I don't want that to be me. I think, um, you know, we've seen so much with solar winds, that that breach and, and the extent to which, you know, that caused so many issues. And the fact that, you know, the, the, there's another shoe to drop on that one as well still because, you know, the organizations that got popped got popped and, you know, popped other organizations. So it, it's going to be ongoing. But the other thing that's really disturbing about it is sort of this escalation of nation state actors, I think, as well. And I think um, when you look at um, the kinds of things they're going after, they're really widening the net on on the types of things that they're attacking. So this is a really big era for security, I, I got to feel. I think so. I mean, if you listen to the head of the FBI, when he talks about how to keep your system safe, he says, if you want them to be safe from us, you need to do three things. You need to segment them so that only the things that should talk can talk. You need to have really tight identity and access management so that permissions are managed and you need to patch your systems. Now, these are things that everybody believes. Those are the three proactive security technologies. Everything else is reactive. In other yeah. words, you're trying to find something after it occurred or you're trying to block it as you detect it. But if you yeah. wanna take action that actually is guaranteed to make you more secure at the end of the day, those are the three things you do. You segment, you do identity, and you patch. And so, you know, in that world, this is a nation state telling you, if you want to keep your system safe, these are the three things you do. I mean, this was recently put out in NIST, um, you know, as the guideline that, you know, micro segmentation is one of the things you should ought to do. Um, and so I think there's this growing awareness that if you are in this kind of world, there's a certain set of steps you need to take and better segmentation is one of them. Yeah, I, I and I think you know, the, the, um, the cost of these breaches is getting really significant now too. Cause I mean, when you look at the solar winds breach and CISA's recommendation was basically, you know, do what Sony did back in the day when they got breached, you just build a new infrastructure and you forensically migrate everything to that new infrastructure. You know, that's like the mother of all refreshes, right? Oh my goodness. I mean, we know of organizations <laughs> that have spent a billion dollars cleaning up a mess. <sighs> Like, because there's not only what, if you have to pay something to get rid of the problem, but then you have to pay for the forensic analysis of everything that's happened. You may have to pay regulators or government agencies for, you know, for, for things if they're fines. And then you may have to rebuild huge swaths of your infrastructure in some way or another. And so the costs go way beyond just like data recovery or something. Uh, it can be the case that it's, it's just massive, the actual expenditure. And then you toss things like GDPR, where it's like, oh, and we'll have a percentage of your revenue too. Um, you know, it becomes to the place where doing something is much cheaper than not doing something. Yeah, I, and I think in the past, you know, companies have felt fairly content with just saying, well, we'll accept that risk, right? You know, but I mean, the reality is security is an existential threat. I mean, you know, you, you have an outage, it's, it's a bad day. 
you have a big breach that, you know, does the kind of damage reputationally or, you know, whatever that, you know, these, some of these can do, and that could be the end of you. Right. So it's, it's true. It's, 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 it's a big absolutely deal. true. You know, one of the things where we were talking before we started uh, about, you know, what attracted you to Illumio and, you know, you talked about the people and how important the people and how great the people were that, that were, that were there. And that's kind of what, what drove you there. I was wondering if maybe you could speak to, you know, sort of the culture of the organization and, 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 and that sort of thing. Well, um, I guess organizations are just like people. They have a personality. And that means that there's places that different people are better and worse suited to be, like in the in the the big bit of the of the real world. I can tell you it's a culture that I enjoy tremendously. We have a very high performance culture. We always have. Uh, we are a company that really strives after excellence as hard as we can, and that has far-reaching, I guess, kind of implications, if you will. We've also made a big commitment to be very present with each other and to have really honoring behavior. There's nobody who yells in meetings at Illumio. Not a thing. Um, I think if everybody, if somebody yelled in a meeting, everyone would kind of turn and look at them and say, are you all right? Like, is something going on for you? <laughs> like, it's a, it's a place that both has high standards, but also has a decent amount of compassion. And I think that's really important. It has been a place that people can make careers. Uh, we have a strong propensity to promote from the inside and to help people develop and grow. Uh, I used to run enablement for our field organization, and I can tell you that our goal was simple. We wanted our salespeople to be better at their career when they left than when they started. Like, yes, we want you to make a lot of money, we want you to sell, but are you actually going to be better at the craft uh, of selling? in that particular case, or systems engineering, if you will. So I don't know. These are these are some fragments that may give you a hint of the culture. It's probably a bit like dancing about architecture to talk about culture. Um, <laughs> but maybe those are a few things for you. So where do you feel that Illumio is today in the market in terms of like the market share and your growth potential and, you know, just, um, you know, for the future of Illumio? Well, we see ourselves kind of in an explosive place. Uh, we see ourselves in that position where um, you've got something by the tail and it looks to be a tiger and it looks to be about to take off. And I think that that would pretty neatly say where we think we see the market. Over the past year, we've seen our business grow tremendously. We've seen our pipeline double. And it's, it's all the things that point to something that people fundamentally want to do. They recognize the need. They want to do it. They're looking for answers. And we hope that we're the company that can be the solution. But we do see the market actually moving in a very positive direction and increasing in speed. And so that's always a good thing. Yeah, I mean, you certainly seem to be. I mean, you know, one of the things that Chris and I are, are always paying attention to is, you know, how often people's names come up. And and so kudos to you folks, because just in the last, was it 12 to 18 months, we've just, you know, and especially while we've been sitting at home, which is just so hard to hear about anything, you know, you guys have continuously come up in conversations. Well, thank you. It's, I think it's been the kind of thing that you do something quietly for a whole bunch of years and nobody's paying attention. And then all of a sudden, people start paying attention and you look, you look like you know what you're doing, but it's only because you've been doing it actually for a while. And, yeah. uh, you know, so it's very gratifying to us to see the market move uh, in our direction and to kind of validate some of the things that we've believed and worked towards for a long time. Yeah, well, the timing is great for you. I mean, it's, it's horrible because pandemic, but I mean, you know, all the changes that happened during pandemic, it, 
you know, you, you were in the right spot at the right time for sure. That's that's got to feel good. Well, yes. And I think it's also even expanded our own horizons. Our business started out in the data center and in clouds. I'm um, thinking, you know, what are what's where's the data to protect? It's in the data center. And so that was how we started. What did the pandemic do? It took all of the laptops out of the office and put them in homes. And the home is right next to the Xbox and your kid's phone and whatever else. It's not even the Starbucks. It's another department of random. And yeah. in that environment, all of a sudden people said, okay, my biggest assets are in the data center in the cloud. Where's my biggest risk? It's the users because who clicks on spear phishing links after all? And with a laptop on a totally unsecured home network where who knows what's sitting beside it, I'm actually more worried about the laptop than anything else. And so we've had people, you know, start to come to us and say, you know, about those endpoints. And so we've seen our business also take up on the endpoint side of how do I make sure that ports for, you know, something like a conferencing application that I might be fine with being wide open on a company network. How do I make sure that those aren't being used for peer-to-peer -peer things maliciously in a home network? And how do I close those things down? So I think the pandemic has accelerated the conversation about the data center, but then it's also opened a conversation about the endpoints. So who, who, who do you consider your target uh, customer? What titles and roles are you trying to target for, for Illumio? Well, I think we've kind of hit on it um, during our conversation. You know, we've talked about the fact that there are people in security that want and need a tighter policy. And so I think the security organization always takes an interest in our product because they're the ones that have policy desire. They're the ones that need to meet a compliance burden or a regulatory burden or that, that say, I want to have a policy of ring fencing and putting a ring or a fence around an application. And then part of our conversation is also with the networking team or the infrastructure team, if you will. Generally, whoever's writing firewall rules, they care about this a lot um, because if they cannot write firewall rules, there's definitely other things they'd rather do. And if it can go fast and meet the needs of the head of infrastructure to actually go fast and have his infrastructure be as responsive as a public cloud, then there's a relevance for the people that run the infrastructure and the network security team. And so I think those groups of people are the primary ones. Some people that get ancillary benefit is definitely the DevOps community. One of the things that happens is that once you abstract something, you can automate it. In other words, automation mm -hmm. only goes as fast as the underlying metadata. And if all of a sudden your segmentation is entirely based on metadata, that is labels and names, if those labels and names are the same ones that your DevOps team uses, guess what? You can now make all the segmentation part of an end-to-end, -end, um, you know, go fast journey where DevOps can push the whole thing through automation. And so I don't know that that makes the DevOps people someone who are interested in buying segmentation, but it makes them somebody that's happy that an advanced form of segmentation is available that speaks the same language that they're used to. Yeah, I, I've, I've seen sort of the rise of the DevSecOps kind of role, which is 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 separate from the traditional security role under the CISO often. And um, I, I can see them as being a really big audience for, for what you're doing in, in this. Uh, I, I got to imagine there's some conflict between those groups, you know, when you go to sell this, but I think I could see the value to them. Well, I, again, I don't know that it's so much conflict as it's people exploring the art of the possible, because certainly yeah. anybody yeah. that's attached to automation and Chef Ansible puppet kinds of products, they want to go fast. They expect everything to be abstracted. And when you just simply say to them, it's abstracted, here's how, here's the way the API works, you know, 
and you'd hear sample code, then all of a sudden it becomes something that becomes mission possible. And we have customers yeah. that have 40 and 100,000 systems that are fully operated in a DevOps kind of way, literally to the point where they throw all their systems away every two weeks and rebuild them in 15 minutes. And if you can keep the wow. security posture correct through that massive churn through tens of thousands of systems in real time, and the security policy is always correct, and no human touched it, and yet it's always correct, always accurate, and continuously enforced, you know, there's people in the world who find that very attractive. Yeah, I mean, having automation and security is a, is a really good thing. <laughs> yeah. So what's next for Lumio? You know, where are you guys going from here? I mean, you've got kind of a, a, a good uh, take on, you know, micro-segmentation and, and zero trust here uh, and visibility into the network. What's, what's next? Well, at Lumio, our journey is fairly easy to understand. We're always trying to make the map better for people so that they have better visualizations and better tools for discovering and authoring policy. And then we're always looking for better ways to distribute and enforce that policy. So we're looking for where are other places that we can put the rules. And so our journey is a lot about that. Um, you can see all the things that we currently program on our website, but that's a list that grows as different customers say, you know, we've got this thing and it takes hackles. Would you put hackles into it? And so, you know, our, our journey looks a lot like that. Make them make the map smarter so that people can make better decisions and then enable those decisions to run in more places. Yeah, I got to imagine it's it's a tricky tricky task to try to you know in, integrate with all these different products and and uh, you know bring them into the into the big world of Illumino's uh, policies. Well, this is the good work that we've chosen to do. I mean, if you get paid for the problems that you solve, <laughs> these are some of the problems that we've chosen to to take on. Well, so Nathaniel, thanks so much for being on. Uh, I think this was a really great insight into. Uh, a really more modern way of approaching some of these very challenging problems in, in the organization. And I think you guys are doing some really interesting work and I, I wish you the best success going forward. Well, thank you so much. It's been an absolute delight to speak with you today on the show. And I look forward to speaking with you again, maybe soon. Yeah, that'd be great. And I, I got to say, you know, when somebody shows up and they've got all the gear <laughs> to pull this off, <laughs> I, I that hit, that's, that's close to my heart and I really appreciate that. So so thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks for watching. If you like what you saw, please click that like button. Hit that subscribe button. That helps a ton for the channel. And if you want to get notifications, click on that bell icon and you will be notified when we post new videos. And I will see you in the next video.